This is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. I'm Lori Gregory. Andy, it's so great to be back here with you. And today we have a very special guest, which I've been bursting at the seams not to talk about what we're about to talk about for a while. So I'm so excited that we can finally talk about it. That's great. No, it's Brian Hooker, Dr. Brian Hooker, Professor Brian Hooker. It is a great pleasure to have you here, Brian. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Andy and Lori. You're two of my very favorite people, and I have been sitting on my hat here and trying to <laughs> hold my tongue for many, many months, if not going on to years. And so I'm really, really excited about what we're going to talk about today. Wonderful. Brian, thank you so much. And this is, I can't overestimate the importance of the study that Brian has done. Just to set the scene, this is the study that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, did not want to do. They really did not want to do it. They did not want to see it done. And now it's been done. There was, for the vaccinated versus unvaccinated comparison, at one time, $16 million set aside in the federal budget for the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee to look at health outcomes in completely vaccinated and unvaccinated children. But they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it because if it turned out that vaccines, those who were vaccinated had worse health outcomes than those who were unvaccinated, then as Barbara Lowe Fisher puts it in the film, the whole program would be called into question. And so what happened was that the CDC was so angry at the prospect of this study being done that they called an illegal revote in the next meeting of this committee and they gave the money back. The money had been set aside to do the study and the CDC blocked it and the money was returned. The study was not done. And based upon what we are just about to hear from Dr. Hooker, Many, many children, the health of thousands, thousands, countless numbers of children was compromised as a direct consequence, a direct consequence. So, Brian, please share with our listeners what it was you did. Okay. Well, I was able to initiate a study in 2018 and was able to, I, I was actually asked to join a consortium of physicians who wanted to do such a study. And there were three physicians, three medical practices at that time. There are still within the study, three medical practices and these were medical practices where the pediatricians were friendly to families who are what we would call vaccine hesitant and did not vaccinate their children. So when I started to look at the electronic medical records of these practices, of these three practices, I found that there was a significant portion of unvaccinated children, almost 31% of the patient roles were children that I would be con I, I would consider unvaccinated. And so I went through a process of proposing with them doing a vax unvax study, looking at the health outcomes of the children in these medical practices, 
for those that were vaccinated during their first year of life versus those children who were unvaccinated during the first year of life. And you, you may wonder why I limited it to the first year of life. And the reason why was I wanted to be able to look at children who were vaccinated or unvaccinated between birth and their first birthday, and then look at diagnoses subsequent to that time period. So I didn't look at the, the totality of all of the vaccines that a child gets, but I, I reserved just that first portion of life. And then we would see after that first year of life, what were the health outcomes? What were the diagnoses? And it was a real opportunity and, and it has been an opportunity because these are actual medical diagnoses made by trained physicians. All three of these medical professionals, medical doctors with many, many years of experience. And these were the actual chart records and the, the actual diagnoses codes I, I actually list them out in the publication that was published in, uh, you know, online on, actually it was Wednesday evening in the journal Sage Open Medicine. And so this is the compilation of a very, very long, tedious, but very, very rewarding effort. And I also want to acknowledge my co-author, Mr. Neil Zell Miller, who's actually an illustrious author, has written about six books regarding vaccines and vaccine safety, and has also done peer-reviewed publication with Dr. Gary Goldman. That's great. Now, Brian, so the, the, we all know the prejudice against the publication of this kind of paper, and we can talk about that further. But tell me about what health outcomes... Firstly, it, it, it was a very intelligent study because confining yourself to the first year of life i presume there were families who were prepared to vaccinate after the first year of life and so that they would then become vaccinated children so the critical window was comparing those children who had and had not been vaccinated in that first year and that i presume gave you bigger numbers to deal with and therefore more power in the study to detect differences should any differences exist that is absolutely correct. We we looked at that first year of life because th that is the single most year where you get the bulk of the vaccinations in the infant and childhood vaccination schedule. Children receive 21 separate vaccinations, and these these include multivalent vaccines like MMR and DTaP as well as single vaccines like varicella or hepatitis A. So, but 21 separate, you know, what we would call needle sticks during that first year of life as recommended by the CDC schedule. So the bulk of the vaccination schedule is being implemented during the first year of life. And then we continually followed up these children. We made sure that the children in the study were continuously enrolled in their pediatric practice until they were at least three years of age. And then we did another subset of the study where they were enrolled until from birth until at least five years of age. And that allowed us when we when we were able to exclude individuals that weren't didn't have continuous follow up and children that had, you know, some types of congenital disorders that may bias the results then and children who received diagnoses 
prior to the first year of uh, or their first birthday, then we ended up with about 2000 children in the entire cohort that we could uh, use as our as our basis for the study. Oh, so it's a good number. Tell me, um, you chose some common, some highly prevalent childhood disorders to study for them. Talk about those and, and why you selected those ones. Well, we wanted to definitely select neurodevelopmental disorders. We use the ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes specific to developmental delays. And so that would include developmental speech delay, developmental language delay, um, and a, a whole other constellation of neurodevelopmental disorders. We did not have, you know, to get down to the granularity of things like autism, ADD, and ADHD. One of the things that we found from these practices, and I don't want to say this is an artifact, uh, that they were friendly to non-vaccinating children, but it very well could be that, that there was not sufficient numbers of autism in these practices in order to run good statistics. So we actually had, we, we had very few instances of autism in these practices, and we had to widen our diagnostic criteria out to include all developmental delays. Okay, and like I said before, that excluded things like congenital developmental delays or, or, or genetic defects that, of course, would have nothing to do with vaccination status. So that was the first one. Uh, then we looked at asthma, and asthma is a, is a, a condition that other authors have written about and postulated the uh, uh, relationship between vaccination status and asthma incidents. Um, and we felt that that was an important diagnosis and it was a very, very specific diagnosis and where we could actually rely on ICD-9 codes plus some uh, chart review. We not, not only looked at, you know, just the, the diagnosis codes, but we actually went in and reviewed a portion of the patient's charts to confirm that this was a diagnosis of asthma. So we did that. Then we did ear infections, um, which is a very, very common diagnosis, and we limited the ear infections uh, like we did with the other diagnoses uh, to children after their first birthday. And so any ear infection prior to the child's first birthday then was disregarded. And um, But this was just a single instance, multiple instances, children who had ear infections versus those children who did not have ear infections. And then finally, we did gastrointestinal disorders, and we looked at a constellation of codes based on, uh, on those diagnoses. And I, as a parent of a child with uh, severe regressive autism who has GDI issues. I've always been interested in the whole nexus between the gastrointestinal system and the neurodevelopmental system. And so um, I, I want to look at that one uh, specifically. And so we looked at those four diagnoses and then we did a control diagnosis of head injury. Okay, we wanted to look at this control diagnosis. Head injury has nothing to do with vaccination status. And so by looking at this particular diagnosis, we could have a control and we would know, say, if we did see a relationship between vaccination status and head injury, we'd know there was some type of overall problem with our study, or there may be some type of bias where unvaccinated children are seeing the 
their pediatrician less, even for things like head injury, uh, which we did not see. We did not see a significant relationship between head injury and vaccination status, and we breathed a sigh of relief when we saw that, and we you know, felt that our numbers that we were seeing, which did in turn show significant relationships in uh, most all instances for developmental delays, ear infections, and asthma for vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. And then in more selected instances, we saw the relationship with gastrointestinal disorders. Right, so this is a huge finding, Brian. You've, in your control condition, head injuries, no association. So we, we're not looking at an artifactual result of health-seeking behaviors. And then you come to the conditions that you've chosen to study. And in all of those, in specific analyses, you find a significant association between being vaccinated and an increased risk of these common childhood disorders. I mean, that, that, that's, that's huge. It was very, very astounding to see the consistency in the relationships and building then a story around those relationships. Not only um, did we do just a straight uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated analysis for those children who had continuous follow-up for at least three years from zero from birth to three years as well as birth to five years but we also did a separate analysis where we looked at the number of vaccines that the children received during that first actually we I'm sorry that's right the first year of life and then we looked at the timing of the vaccinations whether they received them before six months 12 months 18 months and 24 months in separate analyses. And what we saw was a consistent story that children that were receiving more vaccines during the first year of life had a greater propensity for all four disorders. And we actually saw a strengthening of the correlation the more vaccines they received. And then we, um, then we saw that children who received less vaccines when where there was a relationship, there there wasn't as much of a difference, say, from a child who received no vaccines their first year of life versus a child that maybe received one vaccine during their first year of life. So there was a cumulative effect. The more vaccines that they received, the stronger the relationships that we saw. And also, if they received vaccines earlier, say within the first six months of life, then they had a greater propensity of being diagnosed with one of these four disorders. See, Brian, that's one of the things that I find most interesting. And you'll know, we, we've been through VAX together and the whole Thompson study, the age of exposure to MMR and autism risk. But way back in 2000, and I, just, this is just to sort of set the historical scene, I had a meeting with the CDC and uh, we were at Cold Spring Harbor and I remember they were there and there was, I think Frank Stefano was there and, and they said, well, so what is it all about? And I said, well, look, you know, it's clearly not just a kid gets vaccinated, he's at greater risk. There's got to be some more to it than that because all kids get this vaccine, MMR in that instance, and only some develop the problem. So what is the difference between those at risk and those who are not? Mm. We believe it may be related in part to age of exposure. And that, of course, is the, the hypothesis that they then went away and studied and found that it was true and covered it up and destroyed the offending documents. And you were the person who blew the whistle on that. And 
this is something that comes back time and time again, that age of exposure, younger age of exposure, increases the risk of these immunological and neurodevelopmental outcomes. And one of the things that struck me is that I was looking through the discussion of the paper and didn't see it, but do you remember that paper by Cara McDonald from Canada that looked at yes. asthma risk and a delay in the DPT vaccine and showed a very, very strong relationship between those who got the early vaccine and increased risk of asthma. I thought that was a very powerful study. And it may be that you just had so many papers to include that strengthen this relationship. But once again, the thing that comes back time and time and time again is the younger you get it, the greater the risk. And this is such a biologically consistent and coherent thing because we know that for diseases like measles, for example, but many others, the younger the child gets the disease, the greater the risk of an adverse reaction. A kid getting measles under one has a much greater risk of an adverse outcome from that infection than kids getting it normally in childhood. So it's so important that we've got a dose response effect, we've got an age effect. This is so biologically plausible that it, it, it really cannot be ignored. Do you think it'll be ignored? I, you know, I, I almost answered that with dead silence <laughs> because, um, number one, I don't think it will be ignored. Uh, I do think that it will be dismissed as scientifically irrelevant or scientifically flawed or, you, you know, I, I, unfortunately, this is not my first rodeo. Um, Andy and I are a part of an illustrious club of scientists who have had vaccine safety papers retracted. Okay? <laughs> True. And, um, you know, we, we, we welcome uh, among our ranks, uh, not only Andy and myself, but also uh, Chris Shaw and uh, Yehuda Schoenfeld. So Mark and David Geyer, we're a really good company. Judy Mikovits. Judy Mikovits, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I guess she should have been on the, on the tip of my tongue. Thank you very much. But um, so, you know, I've seen some of the comments on Twitter already calling for the retraction of this paper. Mm. Uh, you know, when it was just hours old, there were there were calls for the paper to re be retracted. Well, it used a convenient sample of three pediatric practices. It used, you know, the the uh, uh, confidence intervals were too wide. They were too narrow. You know, I've seen I've seen conflicting criticisms as calls for retraction of the paper. Um, I was you know, conversely, I was very encouraged by the peer review process that this journal went through. There were four separate rounds of peer review for this particular manuscript, for this particular study. That's unheard of. Usually mm -hmm. you go through two rounds of peer review, and this one went through four separate, very, very um, detailed and, and actually very, very excellent reviews and and it was over the process i received the results of the first peer review in november 2019 and the paper wasn't accepted for publication until 
April, I believe April 20th, 2020. So it was a six month process where this paper was revised, where uh, peer review comments were rebutted, where the paper was defended. And so I felt like the journal really, really held my feet to the fire and Neil's feet to the fire in terms of making sure that this was really, really good work. So I, you know, my hat's off to Sage Open Medicine. I, I hope that this really, really pans out and that it does get the attention that it deserves. With some of the feedback that you saw on Twitter, I'm just curious, is that from what we would call trolls or are these actual members of the scientific community? I find it in, I find it not credible that a scientist would dismiss a paper that's asking really important questions when it's hours old. And is this just the same kind of you know, rhetoric that we see all the time in the health freedom space with regard to even questioning vaccines? How dare we even question the V word? Or what was your take on that? My my feeling was I, I did not recognize the names per se mm -hmm. of the individuals. You know, I know that I, I know the very, very prominent trolls uh, in the health freedom space. I didn't recognize the names, but the arguments were very much the same. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just the same arguments that we've heard ad nauseum in in terms of anything that you know, we would publish that would even have the slightest question that vaccines might be something other than safe and effective. Um, you know, just just the same the same drivel that we've that that we've seen, and individuals working really really hard, really overtime, actually picking through a, a manuscript that was hours old in order to find the flaws, rather than looking at the bigger picture and saying you know, why shouldn't we ask these questions? And, you know, and I'm not saying I, I, I want my feet held to the fire. I hope the scientific community really does pick through this work. I think that they'll find that it will stand. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, that's... I know it'll stand. And, and these people are part of the problem and they've lost. They've lost this one and they'll go on losing and they're getting more and more desperate. So they keep throwing this, but they are part of the problem. I was just looking, you know, Let's just get it in context again. Each day, this is according to the uh, American Thoracic Society of Thoracic Medicine, 11 Americans die each day from asthma, and more than 4,000 deaths a year from asthma. Um, and it's a contributing factor in 7,000 other deaths. And I'm no doubt that can, the asthma is a contributing factor in COVID-19 deaths. So, you know, how much, and the cost, the annual cost, to the U.S. economy of, of asthma is eighty billion dollars. Wow! How much of that is completely and utterly avoidable wow. by sane vaccination? So this is a this is a massive problem to get it in context. So frankly, to those people who are going to just jump on this because living in their parents' basement, they're income comes from the pharmaceutical industry you know to hell with you frankly because this is such an important issue and and congratulations to you for doing it brian i do remember once we published you were talking about we just got us we just got a really weird microphone shift i'm this will be edited out but something just happened to one of your microphones 
And now there was a loud hiss. So I just want to see if we can fix it because this is so good what you're talking about. Okay. It seems to have stopped. Seems to have stopped. Okay. 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 Continue. Just to, just to give some context to the, you were saying, Brian, about the, the lengths people will go to to have a paper retracted. I wrote a paper once, which was in a, a journal called Adverse Drug Reactions and Toxicological Reviews, which was independently owned and run. And it was a paper that was critical of the MMR vaccine. Well, in this instance, they didn't have the paper withdrawn. The pharmaceutical companies bought the journal. They <laughs> bought the journal and changed the name. And they took out adverse drug reactions. They got rid of that because that was really uh, misleading. Wow. There shouldn't be an, a, a journal that is dedicated to studying adverse drug reactions. That's unthinkable. And they continued to call it toxicological reviews. And so they will go to any length. And they clearly have a great deal of money and, and influence. So who knows what will happen. But they're losing very, very badly. And that's quite clear. And all of the public relations effort now is being thrown at trying to persuade an increasingly skeptical public, an increasingly educated public, and a public that is increasingly aware of the hazards of vaccination, um, that that there is a problem, there is a major problem. And so I saw the other day that, in, you know, in the, in the wake of the true adverse reaction rate and the failure of the Moderna trial for the COVID-19 vaccine, the RNA vaccine, that not only did the stock price, price crash again in response to Bobby's comments online about the failure of the study, but that there were serious adverse reactions and people now aware of it, the number of people who said they would take such a vaccine um, or wouldn't take such a vaccine went from 30 to 50% of Americans polled. So there is some sanity creeping into the system. People are learning how to understand science far better and much of it you know, thanks to people like you brian so um you know this is this is such such an important paper where does it go from here do you think well um my hope is that we will pick up some additional publicity for this uh, i've actually been working with children's health defense uh bobby kennedy's organization in order to get a press release issued and we're having trouble with the um, the the agency that is working on the press release. Um, we're having to edit this. They they're they're wanting us to water down the text of the press release to fit their narrative. Um, and so what? that's been that's been very very frustrating. So, you know, at this point we're we're working with them. Uh, in order to wordsmith this to at least get the press release out, you know, anything that has a link, you know, that will go across, you know, the to, you know, through the news agencies to the individual news providers um, that has a link to the paper, I will be happy with. I just want them, I, I want news agencies and, and news affiliates to be alerted to the existence of this paper. So we're working with that and trying to get this more broad spread. Um, and also um, it has gone out to about 500 uh, um, news um, uh, and media contacts that uh, Children's Health Defense had collected independently 
of uh, working with this particular agency. So, you know, so my hope is that we'll get some more, you know, what I would call mainstream and, and alternative media attention for this particular paper. And then in addition that more individuals would, would step forward. I was very, very fortunate to have three medical practices that will remain anonymous um, to do this work. And I, you know, several reasons why they're going to remain anonymous. Um, I, number one, I don't want any type of disclosure of any of the patients, anything like that. And number two, uh, medical doctors, when, you know, they, when they participate in this type of work, they put a big target on their backs. And, you know, that you see it, individuals like uh, um, Dr. Bob Sears um, and others who have um, undergone persecution. Of course, we're talking to Andy Wakefield, who nobody has, nobody's undergone that level of persecution <laughs> in the world for losing their medical license for, you know, basically the lies of the pharmaceutical industry, Rupert Murdoch and Brian Deere. Um, so, you know, I want to maintain the anonymity, but my hope is that more individuals will step forward, more medical practices will step forward. So this type of information will be more readily available. And the next time I do such a study that I could do a study with, instead of 2000 children, 4,000 children or 10,000 children, there's no reason why we shouldn't even open up the CDC's vaccine safety data link. You know, I've been in the CDC's vaccine safety data link. That's 9 million patient records, records wow. from 9 million patients. And I know there are unvaccinated children in that particular database. Okay. So mm -hmm. the, these things need to be forced open. They need to be opened up. And I hope that this will be instrumental in opening these up and also instrumental in the big wave of mandate bills that we're expecting to see hit in the state legislatures due to COVID-19. So huge. And we're going to jump over here in a minute over to Patreon, Andy Wakefield podcast, for those of you that would like to join us to continue the conversation for as little as $5 a month, you can subscribe and have access to all of our additional content there. And Brian and Andy and I will be continuing this conversation and really breaking down a little bit more sort of what this paper means for some of the mamas out there that really want to know more. Andy, I think you really pegged the news slug, as they say in the old days uh, in newspapers, about what the relevance of this really could be, and that is the asthma connection, the potential asthma connection, the implication for what Brian is revealing in this paper and what it could mean for what we're seeing now with COVID. If this is an $80 billion a year problem in our nation, is that national or international? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. $80 billion is a huge problem. Um, and whether or not either of you think this could lead to further investigation in the asthma track. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I did, and it, it's not confined as to asthma, as you know. I mean, 6% of American children have developmental delay or more. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a huge number of, of children who are affected by these various conditions. And of course, it's a way of the pharmaceutical companies making money at the back end as well as the front end. You know, make sure. it and then make trillions of dollars on the medications required to treat those problems. 
and, Bobby uh, Kennedy says it's 50 million a year, uh, 50, 50 billion or 50 million a year uh, vaccine market and 550 million a year for the products that cause are caused a, by it, vaccines. It's a B. It's a, it's a B. It is a B. Um, so, yeah, it's it really in, almost incomprehensible for most of us, that amount of, of revenue. Um, very interesting. Before we switch over to our Patreon side of things, Brian, one last comment, if you would, about the the asthma component, I'm sorry, the autism component, and were you surprised at this particular result? It was very interesting to see how few cases of autism that we had in these practices. And, and one of the things that I really wanted to be very uh, vigilant about was I wanted patients who were born into the practices. So I, I made sure that these medical professionals had seen these patients right, you know, they had their their checkup right up after birth or they had some type of chart notes for when the baby was born in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, when we expanded out our scope and, and looked at children who hadn't been born into the practices, uh, children who had uh, come into the practice later on in life, we did see a lot more autism. But it was interesting to me and, and a, a, an artifact that deserves much, much more study is that in these practices that were friendly to non-vaccinating children and mm -hmm. families of non-vaccinating children, that they were saying so few cases of autism. And so few cases of, in, in for that matter, ADD, ADHD, which we put together as one category, and we still could not find enough children in order to do valid statistics in this, you know, in this, what I would call a relatively small sample of 2,000 children. I have been fortunate um, to, uh, I, I've embarked upon another study. Um, this is going to be the, what was published on Wednesday evening is the first of a series of studies that I'm doing. And so in future studies, we will be able to do autism and we will be able to look at vaccination status and autism. So I'm very encouraged by that. But again, you know, these 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 weren't these weren't non-vaccinating practices. These were practices that were just friendly to non-vaccinating families. All three pediatricians gave vaccines regularly in their office. So this is you know, and to see this kind of stark difference where the amount of autism that they that they saw within these children who were born in these practices were was so much lower than what we would consider the national average of about one in fifty-four children. Um, this is this is dynamite. We this needs further study, and we need to be able to protect future generations. Yeah, no, so, I imagine that this is uh, this must now become part of informed consent, certainly within those practices and amongst any practice where a pediatrician takes the trouble to read your paper. That part of the informed consent process is that this this result has emerged that right. earlier vaccination vaccination. Uh, per se, is associated with uh, these adverse health outcomes. People need to be aware of that. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the participating practices uh, incorporate that and and act accordingly. So, um, it's uh, it cannot be overstated the importance of this study. And and the question is, does it appear in the new movie? The answer is, wait and see. <laughs> wait and see. I'm not going to spoil it for you. 
But no uh, spoilers, no spoiler no spoilers, here. No spoilers, but but we will we will include a copy of the paper on the Patreon link for those of you who go over to patreon.com Andy Wakefield podcast, which we will shift over to now for continued conversation. And I would encourage every mama to print a copy of that paper and take it into your pediatrician if you are interested in continuing that dialogue with your healthcare practitioner. Andy and Brian, Brian, much congratulations on this paper. Thank Thank you you so so much much for joining us. Andy, this is number 24 in the books. Number 24. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a 7th Chakra Films production. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Andy Wakefield Podcast and now on Sphere. S-P-H-I-R dot I-O at Andy Wakefield.